Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. I love your voice, man. Love your voice. Well, happy Sunday to you. You excited to be here today? Come on, how many of you excited to be here this morning? It's been a hot week, hasn't it? It's been hot. My wife and I, we uh, took our big three to Roaring Springs last night. And uh, I think I broke my clavicle and uh, caught tuberculosis. And so water parks are not my thing. Can I get a... It's just too many germs and space. I'm a space. How many people like used to like your space? I'm just one of those guys. But we had we had a fun, fun time. So I'm glad you're here. If you could, if you can amuse me here this morning on the count of three, I want you to say "Go Broncos!" All right, one, two, three. Boise State Broncos. How many Fre- Boise State Bronco fans do we have? Okay. Will you allow me to talk about the Cowboys? No. I really don't like you this morning. Um, I want to talk about peace. Everyone say peace. Uh, We're going to get into our teaching passages here quickly, but more than anything, I want peace in my home. As a father of seven, if you don't know this, I have seven children, and in my wildest dreams, I never thought I would have seven children. I actually thought I would go to prison before having seven children. It's how wild my dreams, the, you know, how wild I thought having seven kids uh, would be. But as a father of seven kids, uh, what I don't mean when I'm talking about peace, how many parents do we have here? Okay. Uh, and I think you can relate to this. What I don't mean is that I simply want some peace and quiet every now and then. I think that would be nice, Right. I think uninterrupted crying for hours and blood-curdling screams in the night, uh, less of that would be nice, right? It's funny, my wife and I, we, uh, we often talk, she just gives me the look, and we're like, I give her the look, and uh, we come to the agreement that we, we think we're raising feral animals <laughs> in our household. I love my kids. How many of you parents, you love your kids? You love your kids, but it'd be nice to have a little bit more peace and quiet, right? It's funny. It's, it's just funny. And parents, you know this. It's just funny how something so ferocious can come out of something so sweet looking, right? Why is that? I don't know. We'll talk about that later. But, but that's not necessarily the peace that I'm talking about. Uh, and the peace that I want is not uh, just um, merely the subjective therapeutic kind, uh, a peace which uh, most of our Western world emphasizes, right? We talk about life hacks, and there's nothing wrong with life hacks. We talk about breathing techniques, which reduces your stress and all that kind of stuff, and yoga and whatever. But I think that if that's your thing, that's great. But, but the peace um, that I'm not talking about, I mean, it would be great to have subjective peace, but I'm not talking necessarily about subjective therapeutic kind of peace, which, again, is emphasized in our secular moment. The peace that I want as a father of seven children, I'm sure you know where I'm going if you're a parent. The peace that I want is for my children to get along. Can I get? 
No? Yeah? Okay. I want them to get along. However, I've, I've come to the realization that the arc of my children's moral universe is short. It's not long. Some of you didn't even get that. And it's, be- and it's bent, right? This moral short arc is bent towards mind-altering quarreling and pettiness. I love my children. I love my children. It's funny, my wife and I, she, she reminded me this last week that my kid's prefrontal cortex is not fully developed until after 25 years old. So when my baby wavy, when I have her, and she's a rage machine, uh, I just, this is how I handle it. I just, I just look at her and say, you're just prefrontal cortex? It's not fully developed, and you're not very bright. <laughs> I love you, right, but that helps me. Um, it helps me cope. Guys, I need more coping. <laughs> but obviously, I love my children. But my dream is to see that day when my kids negotiated truce called, I don't know, call it, I don't know, call it ceasefire, called a, a negotiated truce. I, I don't know if we signed something equivalent of a Paris peace accord, but I want war to end in my home. I want my children to love each other. I want them to stop fighting. I want them to stop slapping, spitting, kicking, jump kicking. That just happened two days ago <laughs> for my two-year-olds, right? And he's going to be an athlete. And all you said, Amen. I want them to stop shoving, arguing, raging. They get that from their mom. <laughs> all of that. I want them to stop screaming, biting, hitting, headbutting. It happens all the time, pushing. I am sick of it. I'll give them a cat. And you know I hate cats. I'll give them a cat if I have to. I'll become a Raiders fan and burn my Cowboys jersey in effigy and never speak of the Cowboys again. Just for some peace in my home. The latter one, no. I might give a cat to our family. But I want my kids to share their stuff with each other. I want them to take responsibility for their actions. I want them to obviously stop blaming. Come on, some of you are like, oh, this is just pie in the sky stuff. But we're getting there um, slowly. It might take about 30 years, but we'll get there. But I want them to share their stuff with each other. I want them to care. Everyone say care. I want them to care. I want them to respect each other. You see, my dream for um, peace for my family, my home, for my kids, I believe is God's dream for creation. And if you look throughout the Bible, the Bible names God's dream for creation as peace. Again, everyone say peace. In the Hebrew, the word is shalom. And if you look at kind of this constellation of Hebrew words, they all kind of work together. Shalom or peace, zedekah or righteousness, mishpat or justice, they're virtually synonymous. So essentially they're the inside and the outside of the same thing. So together, but in particular, shalom, everyone say shalom. Shalom describes a cosmos designed around a well-ordered relationships. A world of shalom is profound profoundly relational, or you could even say it's profoundly social, which means this, uh, our relationships with God, our relationships with each other, our relationships with our neighbor, our relationship with the other, everyone say the other, our relationship, and I know our, our age is obsessed with this, but our relationship with ourself and our relationship with creation in a shalom world is well-ordered and flourishing. 
In this world, right, the Cowboys always win every single Sunday. In this world, more seriously, you actually have intimacy with your spouse. In this world, you have friendships that run stinking deep, right? And you're able to overcome any sort of division or fraction that would come, or fracturing that would come and try to separate that relationship. In this world, you, you, you not only have deep relationship with friends, but you also surprisingly will have deep relationship with neighbors and um, even strangers, and more provocatively, even perhaps your enemies. My, my point here today, and I'm gonna get into our teaching passage, is just really simple. You and I are designed for shalom. We're designed for well-ordered relationship. In fact, Arthur Brooks said this. Uh, one researcher observes that simply having a friend you see on most days gives you an equivalent happiness boost. I love this. Of earning an additional $100,000 of income each year. Can I get up? A neighbor, $60,000 of a happiness boost. A, a Raiders fan, you lose $20,000. <laughs> I like, I like, I love you guys. Likewise, he even says that a relationship break is like experiencing a large income deficit. He goes on to say, having no strong relationships, and this is important for everyone in here to hear, is the equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's what the Bible says this man. It's not good for a man to be alone. To isolate yourself is to seek against all wise judgment. You and I are designed for well-ordered, flourishing relationships. And of course, the word of shalom is shaped around what? Come on, talk to me, somebody. Shaped around love. Peace, yes, but, but love. Thank you for your response. It's self-giving love, in other words, that sustains this world of shalom. So what's the opposite of shalom? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. It's disordered, messy relationships that we're experiencing in our world right now. What's the opposite of shalom? What's anti-shalom? It's you can't even have a conversation about something difficult without losing your flipping mind. No? No one's experienced that? I think we all have experienced a sense of loss in relationships. Anti-shalom is a disordered, fractured, messy world. And that's when we come to our teaching text. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain, he kills Abel, his brother. He's fratricidal. And here we have in Genesis chapter 4 kind of a, uh, an aftermath of Adam and Eve and their, their folly and their wickedness. And their wickedness, and I've been saying this for a long time, is defined by um, defining the beautiful, the true, the good on their own terms. And because of that, we have a chain reaction of events. And we come to Genesis chapter 4, and we see this kind of archetypal pattern of not only fratricide, but division even in families. It's Cain who defiantly, as we read, telling God, am I my brother's keeper? And I want you to hear that. Am I my brother's keeper? God doesn't respond to Cain's defiance, but the answer is yes. You are your brother's keeper. Yes. And here's the thing. The sin in the text, K 
Cain's sin is not simply the killing of one's own flesh and blood. It undoubtedly is, but it's deeper than that. It's a Shakespearean-esque tragedy where there, where there is a failure in sin of relationship. I want to make this as strong as I, as I can. The failure of Cain is not just murdering his brother. Yes, it is. The deeper part of that murder is the sin or the fracturing of relationship. You can't get to murder without first having... You know what I'm talking about? Am I my brother's keeper? That's the primal sin which lies at the heart of all sin. Let me say that again. Am I my brother's keeper? That is the sin which lies at the heart of all sin. And I want you to see this. I've, I've thought much about the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus and the Beatitudes. And uh, Jesus has a particular strategy in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus first, everyone say first, first addresses anger and lust before he addresses how to become kingdom people. Why is that? Well, because anger and lust are not only maladaptive in the kingdom of God, they are an inherent violation of what? Relationship. Both anger and lust treat relationship with the other, right? With other people with contempt. In effect, anger and lust uh, work to dehumanize one another. The person Jesus addresses or the, uh, the person Jesus addresses in regards to anger or lust um, before, or actually I'll say it this way, um, the reason Jesus teaches about anger or lust before is teaching about turning the other cheek, seeing uh, other people in light of how God sees them, uh, going the extra mile, loving even your enemies, is because if you're the kind of person where anger or lust rules in your heart, if someone happens to slap you, right? Let's just pretend here today. Let's pretend we're at Starbucks. You guys are really quiet on me here this morning. And someone's invading your space. Let's say you just say something, right? And you're having a great day. You just listen to Drake and God's plans. So you feel like you have a plan from God. You have purpose. And you're there and you're sitting there. And you, may, you say something, that person turns around and slaps you. Well, if you're the kind of person that, that contempt rules in your heart, guess what? I think the last thing you do, you'll do is turn the other cheek. I'm, I'm learning this. And I have a funny story, but I'm not going to tell you because you'll judge me. <laughs> most likely, most likely, instead of turning the other cheek, if, 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 if contempt rules in your heart, you will slam your fist in that person's head. Everything Jesus teaches about in the Sermon on the Mount is the undoing and reversing of the profound violation of relationships, which can be traced all the way back to Cain's, am I my brother's keeper? I'm speaking to every one of you and me. Second, we come to the parable of Jesus which we read in, in Luke chapter 16. And I think this is fascinating because in it, it points to the essentialness of brotherhood. In this story, you have uh, the rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. The parable is called the dives. Everyone say the dives? No? 
dies, which is, is Latin for rich. Uh, but in this story, the rich man uh, remains anonymous. Is that uh, intentional? I think it is. Is it an insult? Probably. What I think is happening when Jesus tells the story is that Jesus is refusing to name this man because Jesus wants to use him as an example of someone who violates shalom. How? The question is how. I know I'm being a little philosophical today, but can you just bear with me? How does he violate shalom? The details are important here, and I owe my interpretation to a lot of different scholars and one particular pastor, and I think they're right about this story. So here it is. The rich man is not judged and then thrown into Hades because he didn't practice random acts of kindness or mercy. It seems, this is my opinion, if you have a different opinion, you're wrong, but it seems that the rich man allowed the poor man to stay right outside his house. Okay, so it also seems that the rich man, if you read the details of the story, one, one important rule when you're reading scriptures, you want to immerse yourself in scripture. You want to ask yourself questions. You want to look at the details because the details of the story are really important. And as you look at those details, it seems that the rich man was taking care of Lazarus which in the purity world of Jesus would have been a social nightmare. The equivalent of this uh, today would be something like someone, a terminally ill man uh, who you let lie in your front yard and every day you go out and feed him a meal. This is essentially what this rich man is doing. So this anonymous man gave Lazarus food from his table every single day. So why is he judged? What we find in verse 24 is interesting. In this postmortem world now, right, there's a great gulf between the anonymous man and Father Abraham. Everyone say Father Abraham. Father Abraham and Lazarus. And so now there's a tete-a-tete, a -tete, right, a conversation. And the rich man is concerned. He wants a beer. I'm kidding. I just wanted to wake you up. He wants some water because he's thirsty. So he screams across this chasm in his post-mortem world, and says, Father Abraham, I need Lazarus to come over and give me some water. What is happening here? Well, it seems like the rich man still thinks of Lazarus as his servant or slave. So even in this post-mortem world, Laz uh, 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 this rich man is using Lazarus. He's essentially reduced to a social utility. And then we come to verse 28. We find out uh, the rich man is really concerned as Father Abraham says, no, I'm not going to send Lazarus over. He's concerned with his five brothers who are still alive. And he says, why don't, and this is the words of this anonymous rich man, why don't you, Father Abraham, take Lazarus and send him to my five brothers? Essentially, he's doing the same thing. He's asking Father Abraham to uh, tell Lazarus, to do something because he sees him and treats him as a slave. Okay, you ready? So what's the answer? What's, why is this man judged? The rich man, I believe, was condemned not because of his mercy, but because he thought he had five brothers when God had actually given him six This wasn't a sin of mercy in the words of one pastor. 
It was a sin of relationship. It was a sin that violated the character of Jesus' kingdom. He never called him brother. He only thought he had five brothers. He, he, he treated Lazarus as a, a case for mercy. In fact, um, he alleviated Lazarus' suffering. I think this is one part, part and parcel of God's judgment over him from a safe distance. He had no relationship with Lazarus. And because he did not get close enough to know the suffering, he was judged. And just, just this is how my brain works when I read scripture. I, I hear, and I want you to hear the echoes of, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? And the resounding answer from heaven is yes, you and I. Am I being dramatic here this morning? I'm not trying to be dramatic. The resounding answer from heaven is yes, you and I are our brother's keeper. Does that, does that include people that I don't like? Does that include people that have offended me? Does that include people that I'm not in, in right relationship with? Does, does that mean San Francisco 49er fans? Does that, more seriously, does that mean Democrats? Does that mean, for some of you, Republicans? Or the, the crazy um, bullsidism people? The in-betweens, libertarians, Marxists, hyper-capitalists? I hope I'm offending everyone in this room. I, as you know, I'm not your self-help guru, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm your pastor. And it's important that you hear, and I don't think I'm always objectively right. I'm probably 80% right in every message. 20% of it, just throw it out. But I hope you hear me today. I hope you hear the force of this, the weight of this parable. As we close... I recently read an article about this ex-big tech employee. And in this article, maybe some of you read it, he discusses the business model for big tech, and it's this. It's a society that is addicted, outraged, and polarized. In other words, their business model is anti-shalom. Now, does this mean we have to get off, wow, whatever your thing is, Facebook, Facebook, TikTok, IG, whatever? No, I'm not saying that, but that's their business model is to keep us addicted and to keep us polarized and to keep us outraged. We are living in a, in a perpetual cycle of contempt. And I'm sick and tired of these wicked cosmic powers that are now instantiated in, not, I'm not saying Mark Zuckerberg, okay? Just don't, I'm just instantiated in organizations that now have created this outrage industrial complex. And so I have people emailing me all the time, well, I need to be outraged about everything because Jesus threw the temple. Uh, he went to the temple and he, what did he do? He took the tables and he threw it everywhere and he vandalized everything and he just, violent. Number one, he wasn't violent. There's a difference between violence and force. And we don't have time to talk about that, number one. 
Number two, this was his father's house. Jesus is, is not cryptically, but explicitly saying, I am the new temple, right? But here's the thing, here's the rub. Jesus did that one stinking time. One time. Yes, we need to be outraged over injustice. Can I get an amen? And yes, there are, there are wrongs that need to be righted culturally, without question. But we are not to be called or defined by outrage every single day. We are called to be defined by love. Remember, it is self-giving love that sustains a world of shalom. Now, some of you are asking the question, because I know I, I, I can read all of your minds. So you're asking the question, okay, so Chris, are you saying that I can't be outraged? No, the Bible makes it very clear. There's a righteous anger. Ephesians 4 and 5 just spells that out. But it makes it very clear that, that your anger, if it's righteous, is self-limiting. There's a termination date to it. Don't let the what fall on the what? Right? Do, does God get angry about things? Absolutely. But what is the most quoted scripture that the Bible quotes? Exodus chapter 34. It tells us about the nature of God. The nature of God. God tells Moses, this is who I am. I am gracious, compassionate, long nosed or slow to anger. What does long nose mean? I love the Hebrew language because it's so pictorial, right? Long nose means, right, um, God's nostrils doesn't flare a lot. It, man, are you hearing me? It takes a long time for you to make God angry. Now, does God get angry when creation is defaced or disfigured by human folly and wickedness? Absolutely. But the Bible also makes it very clear that anger, God's anger, is but for a moment. His love and compassion, I go to Psalm 30, I can go to Isaiah 54, endures forever. Yes, yes, anger is the shadow side of God's love, but it is sandwiched, it's... it's it's a part, part and parcel, the warp and woof of God's love. So my question as I close here today is, if we're so polarized, right, how can we love? Right, if we're living in a culture, broadly speaking, that is, that is um, broken down into warring factions in tribalism, I'll just say this, I'll be really honest with you, love is impossible. Why, Chris? Well, Love, by definition, is all about relationship. In the words of one scholar, love is all about being drawn out of yourself towards someone else. I'm going to say that again because I want you to hear this. Love is being drawn out of yourself towards someone else. You can't love in a vacuum. I, it's okay to, to talk. Of, you just need to love yourself. I'm okay with that. But you can't just love yourself and call that love. You can't just love in a vacuum. In fact, Martin Luther 500 years ago 
coined the phrase homo incurvatus in se, which means humans curved in on themselves. So this was Martin Luther's way of defining sin. It's when we are not drawn out of ourselves, but it's when we're drawn into ourselves, which defines the primal sin. Love acknowledges that we need to be a part of something larger and bigger than ourselves. Can I get an amen? And that is done within the framework of relationship as we allow ourselves, and this is why I use self-giving love all the time because love is so misunderstood. Self-giving love is absolutely okay and gives permission to be drawn out of itself, away from itself. And when we're drawn away from ourself and directed towards God, and directed to our neighbor, and directed to our friends, and when we choose not to violate shalom and relationships no matter what, and we take responsibility for our own sin, come on somebody. That's when we participate in the world that God has for us. That's when we experience human, 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 human flourishing. I remember when I met my wife for the very first time, and I knew after 15 minutes, we had a big table, and we were at a conference. And um, Anne-Marie, Elijah, I love you guys. I just saw you. Oh, my gosh, you're amazing. Elijah, Anne-Marie, can you stand up? I'm going to honor you in the middle. Please stand up. Long, lifelong friends. Love them so much. Elijah is probably the greatest, one of the greatest communicators that I know. And so thank you for being here. Be, be gentle with my message here today. But my wife and I, remember, we were at this table, and I think maybe Anne-Marie was, was listening and watching the whole thing. I was so nervous, and within 15 minutes, I knew she was the one. I'm like, oh my gosh, I gotta have her, right? And I'm thinking, oh, please have me back. You're so pretty, right? And uh, I remember we left. I, I had a group of kids with me. I was a youth pastor at the time. And uh, we went back to, came back to, to, to Boise. And then uh, I remember I did something that I, man, I'm just, because I'm more of an introvert. And uh, I, just, I like to respect other people's like space and privacy. And I just think that's really important. So I just, I didn't know how she felt about me. So I called my cousin up and I just, and I said, hey, cuz, um, do you think it's okay if I call Kelly? And he's like, do it, bro. You're probably gonna fail, but do it, okay? <laughs> So I did it, and it was the worst phone conversation I've ever had in my life. I mean, I, I think I used just mostly um, personal pronouns and proper names. Me, Chris, you, Kelly, right? <laughs> I have no idea what I said. It was a, babe, was it a bad conversation? She's shaking her, yes, it was a bad conversation. Thankfully, I can write maybe just a little bit better than I can talk, and so I wrote her an email, and the relationship was back on, but I, I just remember, it was back on. It was a good, she told me it was a good email. But in that moment, as I was falling in love with my future wife, I could feel myself being drawn out of myself. I didn't care. I, I got to the point where I didn't even, I, 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 what anybody thought, right? I didn't care if I even, I didn't have a whole lot of money. I'm just, I'm gonna borrow money I'll go broke and we'll pay it back later, but I'm going to just lavish 
I'm going to lavish her with just the best stuff. You see, that's what love does. Love does not turn in on itself. Love, real love, real love, right? Did I get psycho on you there? <laughs> real love is drawn out of itself. And that's when shalom can happen. However, in our therapeutic age, uh, we, we tend to see relationships as secondary, perhaps even irrelevant, when it comes to our need for personal fulfillment. For example, like so, some of us might say, none of us here, but at other churches, some of us say, I'll, I'll go to church if it fulfills me. Right? Or, man, I'll, I'll have you as my friend until such and such. Or I'll serve as long as my needs are met or gifts are no longer recognized. All of this, all of this is, is self-serving and cannot save the world. All of it is incompatible with God's shalom. I, I am concerned, I'll be really honest, I am concerned that churches have now become personal fulfillment projects. We come to church, we, come a, we, we become a part of a large church and we start to use people so we can climb that ladder. And not just churches, but, but friends and, and family and teams. And this is all because of this therapeutic age where we've elevated the therapeutic self above everything. Ultimate authority res, resides in the self. And so we curate our own spirituality. And so we're in charge of what it means to be human. We're in charge of defining beauty, true, good. Are you hearing me? This is our cultural moment. The therapeutic self is higher than, in authority, when I'm speaking authority, is higher than scripture itself. So I can just mingle a little Wiccan with a little Wendell Berry, and I love Wendell Berry. I don't love Wiccan, and if you're a Wiccan, that's great. We love you. God bless you. Anyways, we'll move on. Um, but we'll mix all this different stuff from Wiccanism into different, I don't know, different religious experience, some neo-monastic stuff, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, and we just try to bring it all together. Why? Because we are curating our own spirituality. And we're not specifically talking about practices. I'm talking about incompatible worldviews, and we're merging them together because we don't care if they're in incoherent anymore. Incoherence doesn't mean, it, 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 it no longer bothers us anymore. We don't, we, don't, we don't think that, man, that matters. What's interesting is that the primary message of Isaiah is God coming to his people and say, let us reason together. Reason, reason, reason. Are you hearing me? Let us reason together. So, where do we go from here? Well, as I close, this is my second closing. I have four more. Thank you. I'm tired, guys. I'm so tired. All right, so here's, here's the thing. The parable of the rich man follows after the parable of the prodigal son. And as you know, the prodigal son kind of ends a little bad, which which ends with uh, enmity, enmity between two bro, bros, brothers. Before that, you go back a couple chapters, you have uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. All three, as I see it, addresses the dynamics of relationships and the question, who is my 
brother? Who is my neighbor? And all of it has an echo of Cain's defiance. Am I my brother's keeper? When we come to the Good Samaritan story, which we weren't able to, to read, obviously, it ends with him caring for the wounded man. And I love this verse I've been meditating on in the last few days. It says this, before he uh, left, he told the innkeeper this, take care of him and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. I will repay you when I come back. So what does that mean? This means that this is not a story about a random act of kindness. This is not a one-off event. Are you hearing me, people? The Good Samaritan has entered into a commitment, into a relationship, and he will not violate that relationship. I think Jesus gave us the story because that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's inaugurating a brand new world that is bent around shalom and self-giving love. In fact, Isaiah 53, four through five says this. I wanna read this as we wind this down. Surely we have this suffering servant motif kind of fleshed out in Isaiah 53. Jesus refers himself to uh, uh, the suffering servant. But verse four says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? Brought us peace, brought us shalom. And with his stripes, we are healed. We've been talking about this. It's Jesus who went to the cross and took the full weight of evil, absorbed it into his body, took it. Everyone say, took it. He took it. I don't know how he took it, but he took it. He took all the dynamics of relationships, all the disordered relationships, all the anti-shalom forces into his body, all the, the blaming, all the condemnation, all, all the gossip, all the division, right, as a result of human folly and human wickedness. And he overwhelmed it. He took it. He absorbed it. He overwhelmed it. And then what did he do? He released peace. He released blessing. He released what? Life. And everyone said, amen. So how do we respond? What do we do in response to Luke 16 and Genesis chapter 4? Well, um, because I think it's, it's intimately connected to our stories. As we look at the Good Samaritan story, Jesus ends it by saying this, go and do likewise. All this action stuff, come on, Jesus. I remember reading this this week and I'm like, well, that's not helpful, right? Because I know as American Christians, we want a digestible 10-point prepackaged formula that tells us how to do this. But Jesus simply says, hey, here's a story that I'm inaugurating, and I want you to go and do it. In English, you have two intransitive verbs, right? Go and do. If you're like me, I wish there was more contemplative words, like how about you feel it, think about it, study more about it, and then, and then obey. 
But no, Jesus gives a story. He inaugurates the story in extraordinary ways, people. Unleashing the power of God into the lives of broken, heartless, and hopeless people. He unleashes it. And then he says to his disciples, go and do likewise. Here's the thing. We've been saying this now for the last six weeks, and I'm done saying this for a while. But when you act like God, in the words of one scholar, you will what? You will bless the world. And when you act like God, and when you bless the world, guess what happens? You will feel what God feels. And what does God feel? He feels compassion and absolute joy. I think the problem in the American church, if I can say this humbly and with much respect, is I think we've reversed this kind of, if you want to call it, pattern. We start with our feelings. We want to feel what God feels, and then we wonder why we never act or feel like God. And I'm not hating on feelings. Feelings are important. Again, they are diagnostic, and they can tell us where we're at. But I think many times we choose to try to feel our way into obedience when Jesus is saying, I just want you to act your way into obedience. And then here's the thing, all the feels will follow. So what does this look like? I think it looks like my, when my wife, we were living downtown uh, a couple years ago, it feels like 30 years ago, and um, we were surrounded um, in many ways, a lot of different dynamics, and um, we had a growing uh, refu refugee community. And I remember my wife, um, Kel, she had a talent for cutting hair. She was a hairstylist for 10, 10 15 years. And so she worked with Kayla, and uh, she started cutting hair um, in these refugee communities. And it was amazing the relationships that were forged and uh, the introduction of Jesus became a reality as Kel just simply cut hair. Go and do is cut some hair and love people. Might not ever love. Step out of the comfort. Go out and cut some hair. It looks like also um, our cousin Kate uh, who started the organization um, Foster and Heart. She just had a passion for fostering and loving kids, and she just stepped out. And now she's soon to build a house and, and soon to gather these, these young foster children and give them a warm and loving home. And, and I believe God's going to change their life. Come on, somebody. She has a gift with, with kids. And she just took the gift that God gave her and she started this organization. And now God is blessing this. And who knows what's going to happen from this. It's like Rachel Flickle in our church who, who took over Dress for Success, right? And I think their mission is empowering women for the workforce. It's, it's, she just took this organization over and said, we just want to empower women, right? We, we want to help women. So what does this look like? It, it it looks like a lot of different things. But ultimately, our response to the story of Jesus is what matters the most. And can I get an amen? Hey, I'm going to pray here, but let me say this. There's this thing called this um, information, inverted information action ratio. 
which simply means that the more information we get, the less action we do. And I think Americans, I say this respectfully, are suffering from low action because we have glutted way too much information. So, how do we respond to this story this week? Well, number one, I think we just need to ask ourselves the question, who is our brother? Who is our sister? Who are we overlooking? Who, who in the back of our mind are we not honoring or respecting? Who is it that we have maybe a division with, right? Could be, could be someone right now, but this question could be answered maybe in a few weeks. You'll, you'll find your brother and sister somewhere out there, right? But the question I think we have to ask the Holy Spirit is, who is our brother, who is our sister, and how do we honor them no matter what? Can I get an amen, church? How can we serve them? How can we love them? Remember last week, the logic of Jacob's story was when Jacob sees the face of God in his pain, what does he do? He then sees the face of God in everyone else. And then he blesses the world for the rest of his life. That's the pattern. When we see the face of God, we see the image of God in everyone else. Do you see the image of God in everyone else? Who is your brother? Who is your sister? And then finally, what we can do, and I mentioned it, is uh, what you have received for God, from God, your Father, all your strengths, all your gifts, all your talents. So many of you have talents. You do incredible things. You can fix cars. I can't fix cars. Like if my car broke down in the middle of the wilderness, I would probably die in an hour, you know? So it's not my talent. How many of you have a talent? Five of you, okay. I am pastoring a talentless church. And it's not a trick question. I'm going to ask you that. How many of you have a talent? This is our response. Go and do, which means the talent, the training, the gifts, the resources, the strengths that God your Father has given to you, give it away to your brother and your sister. And when you do that, you participate in shalom. And when you do that, you break the power of all the anti-shalom forces. When we simply care for one person, what is that? We are declaring an act of war against all these forces that want to bring division and isolation in our world. Can I get an amen? When we serve one person, one brother and sister, irrespective, irrespective of who they are, guess what? That is an act of resistance. We are saying no to the world. And I don't care what anybody says. We are saying yes then to God and his inaugurating of his kingdom. And we are saying, yes, we will be a community that participates in the peace of God. We can't worry about what the world is doing, but we can worry about what kind of community we want to become. And the kind of community that I want to pastor is a community that identifies everyone as a brother and sister and serves them and loves them 
and blesses them. And in doing so, we participate with God's peace. Now, Chris, are you saying we can't have disagreements? No, we'll have a ton of disagreements. Tons. You'll find that love will invite conversation about disagreeable things. Here's the thing. If your heart is cold, you're not going to have a conversation with someone you don't agree with. But love opens yourself up, draws you out of yourself and say, okay, I'm going to listen. And I want to talk to you about such and such. And I've done this so many times and I'm always right, but I just let ever, you know, all the other people talk and say their mind, right? And everyone said amen. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, I thank you for your presence this morning. I thank you that you would take this word and, man, you would make it part of our lives. Lord, we want to be a kingdom community that's rooted in being drawn out of ourselves. We want to be a community that answers the question correctly, am I my brother's keeper? And as a representative before the Holy Spirit today, and a representative of this community, we say, yes, we are our brother's keeper. And I just ask, if you take your hand, put it on your heart right now, I just ask that you would just show us who our brother and sister is this week. Show us the people you want us to, to love, to build relationship with, to serve. Thank you, Holy Spirit, you're speaking to us already. And secondly, I thank you that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would take our gifts and the talents and the training that you give us and help us to lavish our city with love and blessing grace and hope in Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you that we have the best church in the world and I bless every son and daughter in this room. And I thank you, Father, that you would pour out your spirit on everyone this morning. I pray this, this morning that the Holy Spirit would come on us in a fresh way that we would be spirit-empowered. Everyone would say spirit-empowered. That we would be people that walk by the spirit, serving and loving, unleashing the power of God in our city, in our neighborhood, in our community, and even beyond. Father, we don't want to be complacent. Can I get an amen, church? Lord, our desire is not to live by low expectations. Our desire is to see God move in our community and in our world. And we know that you move, you move, you move, you move, you move, you move. Not just through random acts of kindness. You move when we make a commitment to build relationship with people and we learn to give our lives away for the sake of of your kingdom. And I thank you that's where the power of God is. I thank you that's where the presence of Jesus is. I thank you that's that's when God takes over. 
So we just right now say yes to you, Holy Spirit. Yes, yes, yes. Hey, we're kind of a charismatic church here, so can you do this for me? Can you just take your hands and just do this? Baptists actually do this, my Baptist friends. So we love them. Can I get an amen? But just take your hands and just almost like you're receiving. And I just want you right now to receive God's grace. We receive your grace right now. As your eyes are closed, we receive. I'm going to give you 15 seconds. Just say, I receive your grace right now. I receive your voice. I receive this word. Some of you, I see it. Some of you here today, and I spoke this, I felt it strongly over first service. Some of you have broken relationships. I see God mending those relationships by the power of the Spirit. Some of you have been, I, I don't know, there's, there's a long relationship where you haven't, I, I feel like it's a child with a parent and you haven't spoken to them in years and years and years and years. I, did, I feel like this is the Holy Spirit. I just see in the next few months, God healing and restoring that relationship. While Jesus is here this morning. Some of you, your heart, I feel this too, is so filled with anger towards a family member, spouse, I don't know, child, I don't know what it is, but someone close. Your heart is so filled with anger that this just seems impossible. I just ask for anyone like that right now, Holy Spirit, you would come and show them your profound love for them. Bring healing to their heart and bring healing and restoration and reconciliation to that relationship in Jesus' name. I thank you, Father, for your word. We praise you. And everyone said, amen. Can you give Jesus a hand this morning? Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.